here it comes again, lunch. Will it be the same old, same old? Or are you ready to take a vacation from the ordinary with the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub at Firehouse Subs? Freshly sliced smoked turkey breast, craveably sweet mustard sauce, and a hint of Caribbean seasoning. Just $5.55 for a medium. Save time. Order the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub on the Firehouse Subs app. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Participating locations, limited time only, plus tax. Prices may vary for delivery. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. It's my music. of the mat on the voices of wrestling podcast network hello and welcome to music of the mat the podcast devoted exclusively to the music of pro wrestling all part of the voices of wrestling podcast network i'm the barbarian andrew rich joining me as always on this muscular mystery tour my good friend and partner the score lord chris maffey together we are your hosts the power chords of pain And today, Chris, we are discussing one band and one band only, Metallica, the biggest heavy metal band ever. They've sold over 100 million records. They play stadiums all over the world. Household name. Their music is everywhere. And when I say everywhere, I mean everywhere because Metallica's music 
is all over pro wrestling. Across promotions, across decades, across continents, Metallica have played a huge role in pro wrestling music. And if you're wondering just how huge that role is, folks at home, today's episode is going to show you. Chris, you and I were both big Metallica fans. When we were, you know, researching this episode, did you have any idea just how prevalent Metallica is in wrestling? I had some idea, and the original document that I sent to you of my thoughts of what tracks that we'd be talking about, I thought it's probably like eight or so songs, and then you sent back double, yep. because good old Cage Match has a really handy feature that we discovered this time around. It's really amazing that this one band, this one little band that started out in Ron McGovney's garage in the early 80s could somehow take over the world and also be a huge part of pro wrestling. Yeah, starting out this episode, there are the obvious choices, Sting, the Sandman, of course. But just looking through Cage Match, I was amazed just how many different songs were used. This episode, we're going to chronologically look at 16 different Metallica songs, 16 different ones. And that's not all there are. I mean, there are a couple of songs here that we can't go into in depth because there's not enough time. So actually, we found like 19, 20 songs that have been used in wrestling, which is insane to think about. I mean, I can't think of any other popular band or artist that with that many songs used as themes. Can you? I mean, you'd have to go to one of the really nauseating bands that WWE likes to go to over and over again. But even then, even then, that's like, what, four or five? Like, I don't think there's anything even really close. We're going to find as we go through these songs that Metallica and pro wrestling, it's like they're cut from the same cloth. It just it works so well together. Yeah. Not only is Metallica a huge part of wrestling as far as the music goes, but Metallica, the band, like the guys and their history, they have so much in common with pro wrestling itself. I mean, here's a group of guys who are trying to make it. They're trying to be the best in the world at what they do. They've got their own personalities, their own looks, their own skill sets. And along the way, there's drama and fighting, injuries, tragedies, changes in appearances and attitudes, face turns, heel turns, personal demons. That's pro wrestling right there. Lawsuits. Lawsuits, of course. <laughs> I mean, look at their origins. The original lineup from 81 is James Hetfield on vocals and rhythm guitar, Lars Ulrich on drums, Rod McGovney on bass, and Dave Mustaine on lead guitar. They let Ron go in 82 and get Cliff Burton as their new bassist. Then right before they're going to do their first album, right before the other members of the band kick Dave out because of his quote unquote personal demons, they, shall we say, wish him the best in his future endeavors. And I think they did it in the most pro wrestling way possible because they all surrounded his bed while he was sleeping. <laughs> Very full metal jackety. And then sent him back across the country on a bus for five days. I mean, wow. Not only, not only that, the very same day, they bring in Kirk Hammett as his replacement. The same exact day. That's how the classic lineup of the first three albums come, comes together. And they had Kirk play all of Dave's solos on the album. Oh, yes. That's like bringing in a new member to the stable and having them do all of your spots. Oh, God. Dave is extremely bitter, extremely angry, tells everyone he knows about it, forms his own band, Megadeth, and spends the next 25 years 
hating Metallica's guts. That is pro wrestling. We've got betrayal. We've got emotions. We've got a guy getting kicked out of a stable and forming one of his own. We've got long-lasting feuds, shoot interviews. And that's just one example. We've got plenty more to talk about as we go along here. Oh, yes. I mean, I could honestly talk about Metallica all day. And we're going to try to limit ourselves here just you know, just so not to go too long. But I mean, we could really even revisit this at some point because yeah. this is a topic that I'm really passionate about. I obviously love pro wrestling themes and I love Metallica. They're one of the most important bands in my musical upbringing. They're the band that really made me want to pick up a guitar and learn to play and start writing my own music. They're the band that changed the way I listen to rock and metal music. And every time I listen to them, it's just so apparent to me that they've shaped the past decade or so of my musical life. And I've gone on to listen to so many different types of metal and so many different bands. And I don't know if Metallica are still my favorite band or one of my top five favorite bands, but they're still the most important band in my musical upbringing. So I am super fired up to be talking about them today. I wouldn't put Metallica in my own personal top five list, to be honest with you. But that said, going over the songs here today and listening to them over and over again, it's like, well, this song's great. This song's great. That song's fucking awesome. It reminded me why I fell in love with them in the first place. And really, Metallica is just one of those bands that as a kid, when you're getting into metal, you have to go to Metallica. Exactly. It's like, it's them, it's Sabbath, Megadeth even. Iron Maiden. Iron Maiden, Judas Priest. Like, there's a core group of bands, Deep Purple, Zeppelin even. There's a core group of bands that you go to. Metallica, it's no question, it's a part of that core group. Before we get to the topic at hand here, Chris, really... Do you have any specific memories of Metallica and wrestling coming together? Because I do, and I wonder if you do as well. I do, and actually, my first memory I'm going to save because it ties into the first song that we're going to talk about. Okay, I'll tell my story now then. When I was a younger man, let's say 2004, I was surfing the web, and I came across this wrestling music video called Indestructible. (laughs) I-N-D-Y-Structible. And it was a bunch of awesome moves and spots, of course, from 2002 to 2003 indie matches, like RF Video Era, Ring of Honor, CZW, IWA Mid-South, and it was like an eight-minute video. And the song they used was this really cool song that started out actually kind of soft and mellow, that... And as it went along, it got more and more ramped up and more and more heavy and loud. And it really pumped me up as I watched the video and I really got into it, but I, I never looked up what the song was. So a few years go by and I, I lost the video at this point already. It's, it's in the wind. And I'm really getting into music. I'm getting into Metallica and I'm bouncing around YouTube just to see, you know, play different songs. And I come across the song Fade to Black. And I click play and I hear my eyes light up. Oh my god, it's the song from the video! I finally, finally found it! I was so happy, so happy to finally find the song from that video I, I watched all those years ago. So that is, that is my special memory of Metallica and wrestling coming together. And to this day, Chris, the memory remains. Okay, we begin. In 1983, with the first Metallica album, Kill 'Em All, released on Megaforce Records, produced by Paul Curcio. The song we're going to play is Seek and Destroy. (laughs) 
You know, Chris, it's funny that we start with Seek and Destroy because of the songs on this album, this is actually, I think, the most straightforward, easy to listen to songs off of Kill 'Em All. It really isn't like a proper representation of the rest of the album, which has these really fast and thrash heavy songs like Hit the Lights, Motor Breath, uh, Metal Militia, stuff like that. Seek and Destroy has a steadier tempo, a recognizable opening riff. The main guitar melody keeps a relatively mellower pace than the rest of the album. And James is really keeping his voice in check. He's not screaming his lungs out. We do get that thrashy metal guitar solo from Kirk in the middle there, but for the most part, Seek and Destroy is, I'd say, the friendliest song off the album to a non-Metallica fan, which is probably why it has the most crossover appeal of the songs off of Kill 'Em All, whether in wrestling or sports or just in general on the radio. What's special about this song to me is that this was the first Metallica song I ever heard. But the studio version, the version on Kill 'Em All, wasn't actually the first version that I heard. When I got WCW Mayhem in 1999, I heard the live version of it from Woodstock 1999 that Sting used in WCW in like the late 90s and early 2000s. And that was my introduction to Metallica, that live version of Seek and Destroy from Woodstock 99. And of course, it's tuned down to E flat. And obviously, it's a live recording, so it's very different. There's a very different energy from the studio version especially comparing 1999 live Metallica and the monster that they were at that point and how seasoned they were on the road and how James Hetfield vocals sounded at that point and how they all just meshed as a band as opposed to first album, Kill 'Em All, James Hetfield was still very much in that high register just shrieking and everything sounded so raw, very much unpolished and very much... This is underground metal in the early 80s. So what's so special to me about Seek and Destroy, that live Woodstock 99 version, is that it's my introduction to Metallica. When I got WCW Mayhem, I heard not only Seek and Destroy, but I heard Here Comes the Pain by Slayer. It marked a new kind of chapter in my musical exploration to where now Metallica was a thing that I knew about, and now Slayer was a thing that I knew about. And even Megadeth with Crush'em for Goldberg, which is... Not a good song at all. <laughs> and I would later come to appreciate Megadeth on a completely different level with albums like Peace Cells and Rust in Peace, but this is where it all really started for me. And having Sting use Seek and Destroy, it, it fits well for his character. The whole dark avenging angel thing where he, he fights evil and so forth and, and, and seeks it down to destroy it, of course. But uh, also this song was used by El Macias in AAA, Cybernetico in AAA, Matt Seidel in IWC, and Action Ortiz on the independent scene. So this one had some legs. Again, crossover appeal, easy to listen to. It's about hunting down your enemies. It's a good fit for wrestling. It is a perfect fit for wrestling, honestly. And it, it's not too extreme. This is a song that you can throw on and anyone can really get into this. And it's perfect for pro wrestling for all the reasons that you mentioned. We should also mention that Kill 'Em All features the song No Remorse, which was used by the Eliminators in ECW. Also, Kill 'Em All reached number 120 on the Billboard 200 and has sold 3 million copies in the US. The very next year, though, 1984, Metallica releases their second studio album, Ride the Lightning. They get a new producer, Fleming Rasmussen, who works with them on this album and the next two albums. They also get signed to a much bigger label, Electra Records which is part of Warner Brothers. So two albums in, and they're on their way up, which is going to be a trend here, as we'll see. Let's take a listen to a track called For Whom the Bell Tolls.
So For Whom the Bell Tolls, I think, is a good example of the direction the band is going for on their second album. Instead of going balls to the wall pretty much 100% of the time like they did on Kill 'Em All, instead of being this completely raw force, now they're experimenting a little bit more with different tempos and styles. That's why you have songs like Fate to Black, which is a ballad. Or even the opening to Fight Fire with Fire, which is this really beautiful guitar melody that then goes completely nuts, of course. And you get a song like this, which is a bit more plodding and doomy than complete speed metal. From the beginning, with the bell going off and that opening riff, through the rest of the song even, it takes its time. It's like a really good horror movie, you know, instead of being crazy loud jump scares everywhere, It creates this atmosphere full of dread, where the monster doesn't need to run at you. He'll just go along at his own pace and catch you in the end. That's why, to me, a tempo like for whom the bell tolls is so much more sinister and effective than if it was faster paced. Absolutely. I've always felt that a slow or mid-tempo, absolutely vicious track like this can be so much more effectively used in pro wrestling than a thrash song. I mean, obviously thrash metal is great and it's heavy and it can create an exciting and really energetic mood and it can work for a lot of people, but a song like Bells, I mean, anyone can use this and instantly be cooler. And this could work so well for somebody like, you know, The Undertaker or someone in that vein who has that dark element to them, that aura about them. They could use this song and it could thematically fit, you know, with the bells and all the production value attached to that. It's just a great song. There are so many different hooks and so many different parts to it. They work for pro wrestling. They work in a pro wrestling setting. This is one of the first songs that I ever played live with a band when I had kind of like a little makeshift band and we would play people's graduation parties in their backyards. This was one of the first songs I've ever played in front of people. And, you know, the first gigs I've done were Metallica songs. And this was one of them. So this song holds a special place in my heart for that reason. And I think that with how often this song is played live at Metallica shows and for how long that's been going on and how much of a crowd pleaser it is, I just think it just translates so well to a live setting and a pro wrestling setting that it's a no-brainer. And just to touch briefly again on The Undertaker, I thought as well that this would make a pretty good, not just pretty good, a pretty great Undertaker theme. Yes, the bells, but also the whole slower paced style of the song, which would have suited Undertaker quite well in any era. It could have been great for Dead Man Undertaker, could have been great for American Badass Undertaker. The people who did use this song though, like Seek and Destroy, a lot of people had this as their theme. Of course, the most well known probably is Triple H for his match against Taker at Mania 27, which is a nice little turn there. Yes. Like Triple H using the bells and the symbolism of that against The Undertaker. Yeah. As like, you think you're bad, like I'm bad too. Like, I love that stuff. Triple H is really good at music, as we'll see later on, of course. And he's a huge Metallica fan too. Huge Metallica fan, yeah. Probably a lot of the reason why that they've been popping up over the years. Yeah. You know, whenever there's a new album out or whatever, he gets them somehow involved because he's such a huge fan. Them and Motorhead, he's had a lot of Motorhead involvement as well. And when this entrance happened at WrestleMania 27 and he came out, I'm not, I don't even like Triple H, but I was just like, oh yes, I'm all in on this. I love this. This is a perfect moment. (laughs) It had been announced beforehand by Metallica that Triple H would be using a song and I was like, Oh, it's got to be Bells. It makes sense for it to be Bells. And sure enough, it was. And it was just so nice to be watching a WWE program and hear Ride the Lightning James Hetfield vocals blaring through the arena. It was a thing of beauty. Also used by Sammy Callahan, 
Nick Gage, sorry, Nick fucking Gage, Cybernetico again in Mexico, and Rhino in CWA. Another song that was recorded during the same time but was not put on the album, it was released as the B-side to the single Creeping Death. This is Metallica doing their version of Diamond Head's Am I Evil? is a band that is not afraid of doing covers and wearing their influences on their sleeve. In fact, thank God they do because I read somewhere that Diamond Head was not only flattered that Metallica covered their song, but the royalties from it actually kept Diamond Head going as a band. So that's really cool of them to do. As far as the song goes, the thing I want to bring up the most is the intro. I mentioned the riff from For Whom the Bell Tolls being really sinister. This riff takes it up a notch. I mean, this is this is evil. Everything is evil. <laughs> it, it's so evil, actually, that I heard the riff from the song Black Sabbath by Black Sabbath, that inverted tritone that Tony Iommi came up with that pretty much defined heavy metal as we know it. The cool thing about Diamond Head is that they're one of the most mentioned bands when thrash metal bands talk about who influenced them. And you can really trace back where the early roots of thrash came from when you listen to bands like Diamond Head and Angel Witch and stuff like that. And here, it's very much still new wave of British heavy metal, but you could hear where Metallica got a lot of their riffing style, especially early on. And the fact that Metallica would go out and play live shows in 81, 82, 83, and half their set would be Diamond Head songs. And people in America were not really up on this because they weren't out buying the newest new wave of British heavy metal albums like Metallica were because they were obsessed with metal and they were they just wanted to consume so much metal and metal that wasn't being made in LA. They didn't want glam metal. They didn't want Motley Crue and things like that. They wanted the stuff from England that was inspiring them so much that they then took that and created their own subgenre of metal based off of that. So Diamond Head is of the utmost importance to Metallica and they've done so many Diamond Head covers over the years. They've done The Prince, they've done Help it's electric so many covers a lot of them released on the garage days re-revisited ep and then later on garage inc in 98 which is a great collection of covers and we're going to touch on another one later but am i evil is the metallica starter kit as far as this is what they were playing and jamming on and gigging on to really get them started in their own way, in their own form. And you can hear so many of the elements from that long intro to the guitar solo to the whole structure of the song, how it goes from kind of that mid-tempo jam to all of a sudden, boom, now we're kind of in up-tempo, almost thrash territory. And when Metallica played it, they made it thrash. Am I evil? Diamond Head of the utmost importance to Metallica and thrash metal. And that's probably why when they did that Big Four tour, they had everyone come out 
yeah. and jam on this song at the end of the shows, except for Kerry King because he's a fucking asshole. <laughs> Speaking of Kerry King, in a way, Am I Evil was used by Raymond Rowe in IWC. Of course, nowadays, Ray Rowe, best known for being in the tag team War Machine in Ring of Honor in New Japan. But back in IWC, he was using this song. If anyone looks like they deserve this song as their theme, it's Ray Rowe. The guy looks like an even scarier looking Kerry King from Slayer. Yeah. Love the Raymond Rowe, but he is a terrifying looking man. Also, one more thing here. The title track, Ride the Lightning, was used by Jeff Farmer in All Japan Pro Wrestling. Not Jumpin' Jeff Farmer. Oh. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Motley Cruz, you turn the tables on me, you turn the tables in the wrong way. Motley Cruz. <laughs> NWO Sting, Jeff Farmer. That was the one. Ride the Lightning is a fucking great song. It's fantastic, yeah. Incredible song. Love it. The album goes to 100 on the Billboard charts, so a nice improvement there, and is six times platinum in the U.S. Okay, it's 1986. Time for album number three, Master of Puppets. Considered by many to be the best Metallica album of all time, which, hey, hard to argue about that one. Track number one is a song that was first covered on the All Japan episode with Jojo Remy. This is Battery. Chris, I've said my piece on Battery on the All Japan episode. I'll let you take the floor with this one. Your thoughts on the song Battery. I gotta tell you, there were two songs that I was very sad I was not present to talk about on that All Japan episode with JoJo. Battery was one of them. The other one was Danger Zone, Kenny Loggins. Yeah, yeah, baby. Battery, it's really hard to even put into words because when I heard this and I popped in Master of Puppets for the first time at the behest of my friend Vinny, who was the guy who really got me like hardcore into Metallica. He always wore a Ride the Lightning shirt to school. And I was like, man, I just, I gotta get into this band. I know a few songs, like show me your ways. And he put on Master of Puppets. And as soon as I heard that guitar intro, that acoustic intro, and then the song that followed that just knocked me the fuck out. And I was like, all right, there's there's no way that the rest of this album is as incredible as this song. And sure enough, it was. And sure enough, I fell in love with Metallica. I love Master of Puppets so much. And Battery is, to me, opening track 10-fucking-1. You, you see so many bands that use the Battery template for the first track on their album, even to this day. So many bands. Battery, for me, represents a maturity, a maturity of songwriting and a maturity of musicianship within metal. That is the reason why I love metal, not because it's just all out, just balls to the wall, just high gain guitars and fast drums. The part that I love about this song is how melodic and musical it is. But then you also get to parts like the chorus where it's just James shouting, battery! It's hooky, it's heavy, it's beautiful, it's melodic, it's all things that I love in metal. I love when metal can be beautiful and when it can be more than just what people think metal is. So to me, Battery is not only opening track 101, it's fucking metal 101. So I love Battery. I love that Shuji Ishikawa uses it because he's one of my favorite wrestlers in the world. And I love his 
Master of Puppets inspired t-shirt as well, which is, I don't wear wrestling shirts anymore, I'm done with that phase of my life, but if I could somehow track that one down, that would be the one wrestling shirt that I would wear in this day and age, because I think it's incredible. And also, Psychosis fucking rules as well. Yeah, it's like an ECW, exactly. Yeah. Which is a, th- a theme we'll get to later on with Luchadors and ECW, of course. To sum up my thoughts on Battery, big fucking song, love the energy, love the harmonies at the beginning with the layers of guitars coming in and adding on, getting more and more heavy. It emphasizes not just the band hitting their stride musically, but also the production as well, because this this whole album sounds so good compared to the previous two. It really does. Speaking of Luchadors, the next song off the album we're going to discuss was used by Lismark Jr. in Mexico. And if you're thinking, Lismark Jr., the guy from WCW that lost a lot? Yep, that's the one. <laughs> he used the title track, Master of Puppets. Chris, you said, you know, what can be said about Battery? To me, what can be said about this song that hasn't already been said a bajillion other times? I mean, this song fucking rules. Everyone agrees that it rules. We're not breaking new ground here. What I will say in regards to the song and the album as a whole, actually, is that what the band was trying to do, I think, on Ride the Lightning, they perfected here. We've got thrash metal that is not afraid to branch out and do other things. Be melodic, be slower, be more trudging, but still taking all those different things and putting it all into one thrash package that doesn't seem jumbled or kinetic and sounds amazing. The song Master of Puppets has the thrash metal part with the verses and the chorus, but it's also got the softer melodic stuff with the guitar solo. That It's got the sinister plotting part with the bridge, the master. Master! Pleasant dreams that I've been after, Master! And it doesn't feel all over the place. It doesn't feel like it's like six songs jammed into one. It all flows together and it all fits. And that's true for the album as well. Battery, Welcome Home, Orion, The Thing That Should Not Be, Damage Incorporated, they're all unique takes on the thrash metal sound, but they also sound like they go together. And I think that's why this album is as acclaimed as much as it is. As I said, Battery is Metal 101. This is like advanced placement metal. This song is close to nine minutes long, and I never stop to think about that as I'm listening to it because it's such a ride. It's such a journey. From the very beginning of it, when you just hear that first down-picked rip, James Hetfield, let me just stress, he is such a fucking freak when it comes to rhythm guitar playing. There are James Hetfield riffs that I can't even play at half speed. (laughs) He plays these riffs so fast, all down picking, and doing that all down picking without alternating strokes, 
with the pick is really fucking hard. Even Kirk Hammett cannot do that. When they play live, Kirk does alternate picking, but Hetfield does all down picking. And when you watch this man play rhythm guitar, there is just something else going on there. It's like when you watch Michael Jackson dance, there's something else going on there that is not of this planet. James Hetfield is not of this planet when it comes to rhythm guitar. He's just incredible. And every time I watch that man play this song or any song, I just want to pick up my guitar immediately. Man, this song just fucking rolls. And they play it a lot. And this is one of the songs that they never stopped playing. Even during like the load reload, you know, mid to late 90s years, they still play Master of Puppets because people expect it. People want it. It's as much of a staple as Enter Sandman is when they play live shows. So Master of Puppets, like I said, this is this is when you get into AP metal territory. This was them firing on all cylinders, writing near nine minute songs and just doing it flawlessly. And a lot of that with the influence of Cliff Burton and everything that he brought to this band. A tremendous bass player, a tremendous songwriter, and his influence on metal to this day, it's really incredible. Yes, uh, Lismark Jr. would use another Metallica song. Uh, this one, a cover of an anti-Nowhere League song called So What, which is the filthiest song I think I've ever heard. So fucking what? And fun fact, during the making of the Black Album, which is when they recorded that song, that is the song that James Hetfield blew his voice out on. And he had to not only finish that album, but he had to relearn how to sing. And he had to start doing vocal exercises and doing vocal training that he still does to this day. Uh, And you can see a little bit of that if you watch the Year and a Half in the Life of Metallica documentary, which documents the recording of the Black Album which is an incredible documentary that I used to watch over and over when I was younger. But that's the song that he blew his voice out on, which is interesting. So you brought that up a minute ago or so, Chris. The band is coasting along smoothly. Master Puppets goes to 29 on the Billboard 200, sells 6 million in the US and Canada. Everything is going great, and then tragedy. The band is on the tour in Sweden and driving overnight to the next gig when uh, their tour bus skids off the road and flips. And Cliff Burton, the bassist, was thrown through the window of the bus, and the bus fell on top of him, killing him instantly. And I know that sounds pretty gruesome, but those are the events. And this is, unfortunately, the connection to wrestling, because wrestling has a lot of tragedies happened in it. And when tragedies like this happen, when, when bad things happen to people we like, musicians, wrestlers, entertainers of all kinds, we look back on them and think, what if... You know, what if Cliff never slept in that bunk on the bus? What if Randy Rhodes stayed on the ground instead of going up in that plane? What if Owen Hart never fell? Where would these people be today? What would they be doing? What would Metallica or Ozzy or WWE look like today if they never died? We think about all that and it hurts because, like you said, Cliff was tremendously talented a fantastic bassist, and who knows what he could have done if he had lived. Who knows where the band could have gone, what directions they could have gone if he had lived. But I think thinking about all that stuff, it doesn't do anyone any good, really. Uh, We we don't know what could have been. Life is so chaotic and random, it's pointless to try and predict alternate timelines. So I think instead we should appreciate Cliff Burton, what he gave to us with his time on Earth, instead of what he didn't. Which, I know it's not a unique opinion, but that's how I feel. Very beautifully said. You feel the presence of Cliff Burton at all times during a Metallica show and just with the band themselves. They carry him with them and his father, Ray Burton, is a big part of them as well and he goes to a lot of shows and they keep him in the mix. So, good on them. They still pay him the royalties as well. They still give Ray, his dad, 
Cliff's royalties, which Cliff's dad actually donates to charities. So there's a lot of feeling good around all that stuff out of a bad situation, which is, is always a good thing. After Cliff dies, the band, of course, needs a new bassist. And they audition a bunch of guys like Greg Christian from Testament, uh, Les Claypool from Primus, Hulk Hogan, you know, <laughs> all, all the big names. That's right, folks. Hulk Kayfabe 10 inch penis Hogan claimed that he auditioned for Metallica. <laughs> and and they, they asked James and Lars recently about this rumor, to which they responded, Fuck no! Hulk Hogan did not audition for Metallica. Now, Hulk later attempted to clear up the rumor, of course. And he said that he sent in some tapes to the band, but never heard back from them. You know, you know, brother, you know, maybe they heard my tape and just forgot to call me. I, I mean, Hulk Hogan, the, the guy is out of his fucking skull with these stories. Now, talk about alternate timelines and what it could have been. No. Imagine Hulk Hogan no. being in Metallica. I, imagine Metallica doing the Hulk Rules album. No. How no. how insane and wonderful would that have been? James Hetfield singing <laughs> the Hulksters in the house is something that I never yeah. need to hear. Hulksters in the house. Yeah. <laughs> they do not go with Hulk Hogan, thankfully. They go with Jason Newstead from the band Flotsam and Jetsam. And in 1989, the band puts out their fourth album, And Justice for All, which continues the upward trend of the band. Uh, number six on the Billboard 200, eight times platinum. Strangely enough, Chris, we even though this album is the biggest one yet, we couldn't find any songs that were used as themes. No, and I was very upset about this because, first of all, this is my favorite Metallica album. And yes, I know that there's no bass in the mix. Yes, we know that. What's done is done, but that is the sound of this album. But the songwriting on this album, to me, is just out of this world, and I love it, and I never skip a track. I don't really don't skip a track with most Metallica albums, but I was very surprised that there were no... I, someone somewhere has had to have used Harvester of Sorrow as their wrestling theme. I'm sorry. It just does not compute that that has not been done. My theory is that Injustice for All is one of the less accessible Metallica albums. It's, it's very dense. The songs are really long and complex. And to me, anyway, this is my opinion. They're not easy to get into. I remember reading somewhere that when the band went on tour for the album, they would play these like nine, ten minute long songs. And the band, the, the audience, would have like these long faces on. And the band was like, we can't do this anymore. We have to change it up. And honestly, it's hard for me to listen to this album. It's easier for me to get into, you know, Master Puppets or Lightning than it is to get into To Live Is To Die or Injustice For All The Song. Oh. Listen, listen, even a song like One, which is a masterpiece, it doesn't really seem conducive for a wrestling theme. There's a lot of- One, no. No, it's a lot of movie parts. It's like some parts really don't fit. You can't really picture working it in that scenario as opposed to Sad But True or Trapped Under Ice even, or a bunch of other earlier songs like that. Also, like you said, the production, not that great. Jason's bass is pretty much non-existent. That's my theory anyway. Speaking of Harvester of Sorrow, a little fun fact for you, Chris. Perry Saturn wanted the original name for the Eliminators to be the Harvesters of Sorrow. That would be fucking badass. Saturn is the Roman god of agriculture and harvest. <laughs> and the Greek equivalent to Saturn is Cronus. So they would be the Harvesters of Sorrow. But that was changed because... Wrestling fans are fucking idiots, and they wouldn't get the reference. Harvester of Sorrow itself, I was going to actually say this, 
it does sound like something that would be in wrestling, either a finisher or someone's nickname. It sounds like yeah. it's like something Bray Wyatt would call himself. I love that song so much. Hey man, I'm the eater, I'm the harvester of sorrow, man. <laughs> yeah. That is the one song on the album that I think it would have to be a wrestling theme. It's perfect. If I was a wrestler, I'd use Harvester of Sorrow. All right, a couple years later, 1991, we get the big one, the WrestleMania 17 of Metallica albums. It's their subtitled fifth album, a.k.a. The Black Album. Fleming Resmussen is out. Bob Rock is in as producer. And Banana. <laughs> Call back there to uh, the Valentine episode. Uh, along with James and Lars as co-producers. And uh, Bob will stay with the band for the next 12 years or so. So we begin with the opening track, the song that everyone and their mother knows from Metallica. This is Enter Sandman. much to say about this one Chris and it all starts I think with Bob Rock because Bob Rock is a guy who has produced albums like Dr. Feelgood by Motley Crue and Sonic Temple by The Cult. He knows how to make a rock or metal band sound good and appealing to the mainstream and that's what he does here with the Black Album and Metallica. It's not only the cleanest sounding Metallica album yet, it's also the one that busts down the door and throws them headfirst into the mainstream. This album debuts at number one on the Billboard 200 and sells 16 million copies in the US alone. And it's easy to see why with tracks like Enter Sandman or The Unforgiven or Nothing Else Matters or the other two songs we'll be talking about. These are easy to digest metal songs that can cross over into pop culture at large. This is not, you know, and Justice for All Part 2. You know, the band were sick of doing those type of songs at this point. But it's still Metallica. Enter Sandman is a Metallica song. It's just got that, you know, it's got the sinister guitar riffs, the pounding drums, the deep bass, the dark lyrics, except this time it's in that standard verse chorus, verse chorus, solo bridge chorus structure that so many rock songs have. And the pacing isn't as chaotic as a lot of their earlier songs. It's not as long as the earlier songs as well. The hook is easier to sing along with, too. And the production sounds great. So it's the type of metal music that will attract a wider audience. And as history shows us, it worked. It definitely did work. I love Bob Rock as a production person myself and someone who loves recording music and making music and making it sound as good as possible. I appreciate the living fuck out of Bob Rock for making metal sound as pretty as it possibly can. Now, people who criticize the production, these diehard metalheads who just want everything to be recorded on an answering machine and they don't want anything to sound pretty and nice so people can get into it, 
they're idiots because this album does so much, not only for Metallica, but for metal. This album gets metal represented at the Grammys, at all sorts of, you know, MTV, VMAs. This gets metal on a different plane than it even was in the 80s with glam and all of that. This takes, you know, straight ahead hard metal and it presents it to a new mass audience, which was unparalleled at that point. And this album still sells thousands and thousands of copies every week to this day since it was released. And that says that not only do these songs have staying power and that they're pretty timeless, but the production too. The production is is timeless and you can get into this at any point and it sounds like a beautiful metal album and also a beautiful rock album as well. Now, Enter Sandman in particular, this is a song that I've not had the best relationship with throughout the years because when you first get into Metallica and you hear this song, it's the greatest thing of all time. You learn to play the riff on your guitar and everything is well and good. And then, oh yeah, duh, Sandman used this in ECW. So there's that added little nugget to it that just makes it even cooler. But then as you go on and you get into more of Metallica's back catalog and you get into more metal and things, you know, you look back and you see your old friend enter Sandman and you say, I never need to hear that song a fucking again. (laughs) And I equate it to, I've mentioned a couple times, I'm a huge Michael Jackson fan. I never go out of my way to listen to Thriller. I never, because I've heard it so much. But if I happen to be listening to the album and Thriller comes on, I'll listen to it because it's part of the experience that I'm having. And as such, if I'm going to listen to the Black Album, I have to click on Enter Sandman because it's the first track. So I'll go along with it for the experience of listening to that album. But the experience of watching the Sandman's entrance is a whole completely different beast. I don't know if there's ever been as much of a, just a codependence on entrance song and wrestler than that the relationship that the Sandman, who by the way, is one of the worst wrestlers of all time. He's not, it's not great. Enter Sandman... As a wrestling theme, with the exception of maybe Sting and Seek and Destroy, this is probably the most iconic Metallica wrestling theme ever of all time. And because of that, the Sandman in ECW, horrible wrestler as he was, or still is, I guess, he, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because when he comes to the crowd, when that, when those opening notes play that, doom, 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 which everyone knows, when that plays, he comes out through the crowd, with the cane, drinking the beers, everyone sings along. I mean, that's what makes an entrance special. That's what makes that's what made ECW special. Like that originality of the of the entrance of, of coming through the crowd with beers and, and canes and like getting drunk with the fans. I mean, that's what makes a wrestling theme become iconic. Is the overall experience of the entrance and the intimacy of it. That's why I think. One Night Stand 2005, that may go down as one of the top entrances ever. Because when that song hit, the entire Hammerstein ballroom erupted and they shook the walls with their energy and their singing. It was incredible. They're actually singing the song. So Sandman, God bless him, as bad as he is, he will always have Enter Sandman as his legacy. And hey, that's a pretty fucking great legacy to have.
I will never listen to this song and not at some point think of Sandman, which is is crazy because it's Metallica. They didn't make this song for Sandman. This is on one of the most successful metal albums of all time. Yeah. And yet I still associate it with that because it helps that his name is Sandman too. I suppose if his name was Unforgiven, <laughs> we'd be having a different conversation. Wouldn't have the same punch with the intro, unfortunately. Using the Unforgiven as an entrance theme, that would be something. Yeah. That would take the special kind of gimmick to, to pull off as an entrance theme. That would be very interesting. But... Enter Sandman. I mean, what can you say? Everyone knows this. I mean, at a certain point, I believe Mariano Rivera on the Yankees yep. was using this as his theme, and that was his a walk, big, his walk on music. Yep. Yeah, that yep. was that was a big thing. And if I remember correctly, Metallica actually played the song live for Rivera on his last night. Did they? Yeah, I think it was. So it's pretty cool for them. What I also think about when I hear this and I think about the Sandman is that really shitty WWE CW song that they made for him that was. Oh. Oh, yeah. In a way, <laughs> recalling Enter Sandman, but it was just really shitty. Yeah. Same with uh, Tommy Dreamer's shitty Man in the Box cover. Oh, yeah. Also, this theme was used by Chris Jericho in CMLL, one of his 600 themes he's used over the years. I can't wait to do the Chris Jericho episode. It's going to be a long one, I think. <laughs> Up next is track two. This song is Sad But True. Again, a prime example of the band modifying their sound. Still heavy, still in your face, but slowing it down and incorporating, you know, pauses and silences into the song to emphasize the music more. And to the benefit of the song as a wrestling theme, having it be so well-tempered in terms of pacing makes the riff seem so much more badass. And that in turn makes the wrestler who uses it look more like a badass. I mean, this riff in general, I mean, it's it's a fucking great riff. It is. The whole album is rife with amazing, iconic guitar riffs. And Sad But True, it, it's no different. Like I said, it's heavy as fuck from the opening note. Oh, it's so good. Uh, what about you, Chris? Your thoughts on Sad But True? Sad But True is interesting because the way that I first heard this song was actually when it was sampled by Kid Rock for American Badass. Yes, <laughs> which we covered a little bit in the Undertaker episode, yes. And imagine my surprise the first time I ever put on the Black Album and heard this song and didn't hear, um, and yeah. American Badass. <laughs> One of the shittiest <laughs> musical offerings that has ever been. <laughs> imagine my surprise when I heard this song without fucking Kid Rock. Oh, God. This song is a live staple for Metallica. It's often prefaced by James Hetfield saying you want heavy Metallica gives you heavy <laughs> and that's exactly what they do with this one this is this is one of their heaviest riffs yeah it crushes it really does not to mention super memorable with James Hetfield's you know hey hey and, and the vocal delay 
kind of playing around with little vocal things like that and just different production techniques that make what is really a simple song make it a really special song. This is one of the examples of them tuning down to drop D and whenever you tune down into a drop tuning it automatically makes whatever you're playing on the top strings a lot heavier. So hearing Hetfield play this riff in a year and a half in the life of Metallica when he's tracking guitars and the way Metallica tracks guitars is they do panned hard left, hard right, another layer left, another layer right, and then one right down the middle called the thickener. And they started doing this with Injustice for All, which admittedly doesn't sound that thick. <laughs> but on this album, when you you see Hetfield tracking that It's meaty. It's incredible to watch him track that and the guitar tone that he had and just the way this song sounds is really great for pro wrestling because you don't have to run out to it you don't have to be super energetic you can just walk out like a fucking badass which kind of begs the question as to why Rey Mysterio was using it yeah again luchadors to me anyway you don't really look at them and think like Metallica you know you think like Metallica you think like big beefy guys you know like that Rey Mysterio who's like my dad's height <laughs> and it probably weighs the same as him coming out to Sad But True, which is a fucking great song, but doesn't really go together with Rey Mysterio. Of course, also in ECW, this song was given to Chris Chetty, C.W. Anderson, Michael Shane, of all people, because funny enough, Michael Shane, aka Matt Bentley, was in late era ECW, Roadkill, and then in OVW, is given to Trinity. So yeah, this is another example of a song being passed around a lot, like, you know, it's like the village bicycle. Everyone's had a ride, you know, just... <laughs> the sad thing is that its biggest association with wrestling is for fucking American badass. Oh, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a travesty. Which brings back memories, man. It's been a while since we recorded that Undertaker episode. We've changed a lot, for sure, for sure. Oh, yes. All right, our next song off the Black Album is one that we also covered before on the AJ Styles episode, ever so briefly. This is Wherever I May Roam. Chris, at the risk of sounding like a broken record, or worse, a wrestler from the 80s, slow it down, grab a hold, mug the audience. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously though, like Enter Sandman, like Sad But True, it's another example of the band slowing it down and making the riff meaty and heavy because of it. Just a fantastic badass riff, and you got the gong and the sitar at the beginning, which is different for sure than we, what we've heard before from Metallica, absolutely. The thing is about this, the style change, the thing about slowing it down is that it really helps you enunciate the riff. You can really let the audience hear each and every note when you go slower. And this whole album is loaded with iconic guitar riffs that you know every single note that's being played. Both slow and fast, actually, I think. Because I think it's important to note that even though the Black Album 
was a big step in another direction for the band. That's not to say that thrash metal is completely gone. The struggle within is thrash as hell. Love that song. Of Wolf and Man is thrash as hell. Through the never. Through the never. Wherever I may roam and Sandman and Sad and Unforgiven, those are heavy metal songs. May not be thrash, but they're still fucking heavy in their own way. Wherever I may roam, this kind of gets into like arena rock territory almost, but it's still Metallica. And that's the thing. This band can do anything that they want to do, and it doesn't always work. Listen. Yeah. (laughs) We're going to talk about something that definitely didn't work a little bit later on. But, I mean, this band, they do what they want. The Black Album is not selling out in the way that we're going to play something that we know works just to make money. This was a huge gamble. They could have lost their entire fan base. But if you really look back, they were doing this type of stuff all along, right? All the way from Ride the Lightning. And even if you want to go to some softer moments on Kill 'Em All. Seeking Destroy itself is kind of a softer moment in, in a way, yeah. Yeah, that middle section. So they've been doing this all along. Metallica proved all along that, hey, we're not only going to be thrash and heavy as fuck and faster than everyone and louder than everyone we're also going to be musical and that goes back to james hetfield taking piano lessons as a kid and cliff burton's vast musical background and how eclectic he is and kirk hammett taking classical guitar lessons and taking guitar lessons with joe satriani and things like that this is a very musical band and they're going to incorporate that of course into what they're doing so when they say we want to slow it down and make the type of music that we want to make That's not a sellout. The fact that it happened to be completely successful is a byproduct of them doing exactly what they want to do at the exact right moment in rock, in Western music, in pop culture. Mm. It was the perfect storm. Wherever I May Roam is the perfect storm when it comes to pro wrestling because thematically, it translates perfectly. And you can just, from the first lyric, and the road becomes my bride, it's right there. And it makes sense as to why wrestlers would want to use this especially a world travel guy like AJ Styles. Now, he was using this in his much younger days, but there's still that romanticized, oh yeah, I'm on the road, I'm a wrestler, I'm kind of like a rock star, and where I lay my head is home. It really does hit home. AJ used this, uh, Juvie Guerrera used this in ECW, and yeah, the Black Album is the rocket ship. This is the one that broke them through into the mainstream. Millions of albums sold, number one in the charts, it won the band their first Grammy. They're touring nonstop all over the world to huge crowds. I mean, they made it. They are now superstars, not just the metal scene. You know, everyone knows them now. This is like my dad telling me, you know who's pretty good? That Cesaro guy, (laughs) which which actually happened. It's kind of weird to think about my dad knowing and liking Cesaro. But for them to get so famous and so big, they couldn't do it without sacrifice. I mean, the recording sessions with Bob Rock were notoriously tense between them and, the, and Bob. Yeah. A lot of stress, so much so that by the end of it, three of the four members had divorced their wives after the recording process was over. I mean, damaging your personal life is something that a lot of wrestlers probably know a lot about. <laughs> and, and to be fair, I'm not sure that those marriages would have lasted anyway. Yeah. I, the, the road is their bride. Demons, of course, I'm sure as well, played a part as well. And, and sacrificing in terms of their sound, in order for them to, you know, ascend to this higher level, they needed to get rid of their older, thrashier sound and adopt their more commercial sound, which is kind of the equivalent of the indie darling wrestler signing the contract and becoming a WWE superstar. A change is going to come. 
It could be a little change, it could be a big change, but once you cross that Rubicon, the change will happen. And speaking of, you know, of divisions between old and new, not only does the Black Album create this divide between the old Metallica sound and the new Metallica sound, but it creates a divide for the fans as well. You'd mentioned this a little bit earlier, Chris. The Black Album to this day, I think, is so divisive for Metallica fans. Personally, I really love it. It's actually my favorite Metallica album. And there are other people who love it as well because it's more accessible and versatile. But there are people who hate it because they think that Metallica betrayed their roots. And again, that's the catch when you change your sound to become super popular. The fans that were there from the beginning are either going to stay with you and be happy for you and go along the ride with you, or they're going to be resentful and leave. And it's just badmouth you for the rest of your career. And that rift is going to follow the band for the rest of their careers, even when they go back to thrash later on with Death Magnetic. And to this day, it's still there. Yeah, but honestly, that's a chance that you have to take as a creator, as someone who is artistic, because bands who never change their sound are going to get boring. It's going to get old. It's necessary to change. I'm not making the same type of music that I was making 10 years ago, and I'm only 26, and I'm still, by what many people would consider to be a very young person, I'm not making the same type of music that I was 10 years ago. So I can only imagine what it's like to be in the position of having to constantly top a Ride the Lightning, a Master of Puppets, and Injustice for All, and just wanting to go into a completely different direction. So I completely understand why they did it. I love that they did it. I love this album. I love the production. I love the songwriting. It has some of my favorite Metallica songs on it. So I love the Black Album, and I'm glad that it is well represented in the theme department. So after... An endless, and I do mean endless, amount of touring for this album because they toured for years with this album. Metallica goes back into the studio and they write so many songs that originally they wanted to do a double album. But then they decided to split them into two albums, one album released in 96 and the other the following year in 97. The former, their sixth studio album, is called Load. And if you thought the Black Album was a change in direction, then just wait. Because when this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're going to see some serious shit. This song is called Until It Sleeps. Reload is the band continuing to move away from their old thrash metal sound and exploring a more hard rock direction. There is hard rock on the Black Album. This one, though, goes even further into that territory. There's a lot more emphasis on the blues and southern rock and alternative. And just in general, it's a more, I guess, down to earth style of playing, simple riffs, simpler drum beats. A lot less, you know, squeedle-eedle-eedle, a lot more chugga-chugga-chugga, if that makes sense. <laughs> and, and James in particular, James is really coming into his own here as a singer. He started doing a little singing on the Black Album with The Unforgiven and Nothing Else Matters. 
Here though, on this song and the album as a whole, he's really making the effort to sing instead of yell. And Until It Sleeps is a good example of all of that I just mentioned. It starts out with that low bass line that's really groovy and, and bluesy. Fretless bass. And then the verses are so melodic and mellow. Such a, such a contrast with the earlier sound. I mean, even the mellower songs in their early albums weren't like this. But then there's the chorus, which does get heavy. And that's something, again, I have to mention. The heavy never goes away. It's on every album. It's just a different type of heavy and a different sound. Here, the heavy is hard rock, bluesy. You know, King Nothing, Ate My Bitch, Hero of the Day, Mama Said. These are all heavy songs, which are very good songs, in my opinion. But they're not like the heavy that was on the Black Album, even. Or Master of Puppets, or Justice, or Lightning. So, Until It Sleeps is a good example of where the band, where their heads were at. In terms of what they wanted to create and evolve into. Because Lars once said that Metallica is always evolving. And here, it's true. This is Metallica starting to take note of some of the musical acts around them that they maybe looked around and saw grunge starting to become a thing. And they saw Alice in Chains, which they've been on record as being a huge influence for them around this time. You know, Lars with his drums hanging out with Sean Kinney from Alice in Chains and sitting behind his drum kit and realizing, oh, wow, you only have a few pieces here and I have like 16 rack toms and I don't need this anymore. I can get a, a groovy sound and, and kind of a more lively sound and just keeping it simple. And you hear that on this song. The main influence for this song in particular being Soundgarden and the song Fell on Black Days, oh, which yeah. James talks about as being the direct influence. I can hear that. The demo of this song is titled F-O-B-D <laughs> for Fell on Black Days. There you go. So yeah. Soundgarden, a huge influence to them at this time. Soundgarden was actually an influence to them during the making of the Black Album because Kirk Hammett has been on record in saying that he wrote the main riff for Enter Sandman after listening to Louder Than Love by Soundgarden. It wasn't a direct, that sounds nothing like Soundgarden, and it wasn't a direct right. inspiration, but he was just so inspired to make music after listening to that album that he wrote that Sandman riff. And look what that did for them. So Soundgarden has to be noted to be a huge influence on Metallica in the 90s. So it's very cool to hear them taking up kind of the grunge sound a little bit on songs like this all throughout Load and Reload, which I have to say, there are songs on both of those albums that I never listened to and that I've never listened to in full, but there are also songs on both of those albums that I love and they're among my favorite Metallica songs of all time. My deal is, and I think this is a popular sentiment, is that if you took like half of Load and half of Reload and made it one album and made, took like 14 tracks, you know, the best from Load and Reload, that would be a fucking killer album. As they stand now, you know, there's still two really good albums with great stuff on them, but they're not, I skip tracks. And that for me is something different because on Metallic albums, I don't usually. Until It Sleeps is not a track that I ever skip. This is a great song. Yeah. As a wrestling theme, I'm not sure if it really fits. It's not conducive, certainly, for a wrestling theme. The heavy parts are heavy and great, but there's a lot of slower, melodic stuff that wouldn't really work. I mean, this was used by uh, Black Warrior in CMLL, but anyone really, it wouldn't really work as far as the theme goes. Also, we haven't really touched on this yet. As far as the lyrics are concerned, James is getting more and more personal with his lyrics here. Until It Sleeps and Mama Said are about his mom and their relationship 
and her death when he was a teenager. Bleeding Me is about James trying to stop drinking. So another little difference here, less about general mayhem and battery and and H.P. Lovecraft villains, you know, monsters, more about personal matters, which is another big difference between the old and the new. And the great thing is, both of those are great. Yes. When they're making songs inspired by H.P. Lovecraft, I love it. And then when James is kind of being more internal and more personal, I love it too. And I think that just comes with being not only musically accepting and more diverse and eclectic, but just loving a band and loving their journey. And when James, whenever there's there's something that I feel is a little bit more personal and, and really James kind of talking about himself as opposed to being a storyteller and talking about someone else or a character that doesn't exist, I appreciate that a lot. So while this does not make a great wrestling theme, it's still an amazing song. Yeah, bands evolving, like you said. You know, you, you can love both. You know, I love 70s prog rock, yes, with their, you know, 18 minute songs. But I also love 80s pop rock, yes. Yeah. And more 90s modern rock, yes. So you can like different stuff. It's all a matter of personal taste. Do you like the song or not, regardless of the genre? So yeah, it's it's cool to see how Metallica can do the crazy epic monsters and mayhem, but also do the really intimate stuff. And they're both great. Black Warrior, by the way, would use another song by Metallica, I Disappear, which is off the soundtrack to Mission Impossible 2. Load goes to number one on the Billboard charts and sells 4 million copies in the U.S. The next year, 97, the band releases their seventh studio album. It's called Reload. And we start with the opening track, Fuel. Give me fuel, give me fire, give me that which I desire. Remember, folks, the heavy doesn't go away. It just reshapes itself like a T-1000 or the Wonder Twins. And in this case, it takes the shape of a bust-ass hard rock song. Hey-ho! This song rules. It's high energy, high octane, all the way through. The riffs are moving. The grooves are grooving. It's a fun time had by all. And it's proof, it's living proof that, yes, the band are a long way from 1983. Yes, the band is doing bluesier stuff, they're doing more personal stuff, but when they want to, when they need to, they can still bring the ruckus, they can still bring the pain, they can still bring the noise when they need to, albeit in a different style. This is more, you know, modern sounding speed metal lead than the thrash stuff, but I love it. Great, great, great choice for an opening track. And for a wrestling theme. It's a different kind of opening track, isn't it? Because we're used to them maybe starting off with an acoustic or clean guitar and then kind of going into something heavier. This is just fucking James. Give me fuel, give, give me fire, give me that to go. Just go right into it. And I'll be damned if it doesn't get you pumped up. Yeah. It just really has so much energy. And, you know, the lyrical content is, is James writing about cars. Yeah. Honestly, that wouldn't have been out of place in the Kill 'Em All years. And it's also something that Hetfield is really super passionate about. 
So I don't get the sense that it's at all manufactured in any way. And it's not lame because James Hetfield is singing these words and he's delivering the vocals mm. and it sounds amazing. Yeah, NASCAR loved the shit out of this song. They, they played it all the time. And yeah, the arguments again, sell out, sell out, clunks. When did Metallica ever say, we will never, ever, ever use our songs in commercials, ever, ever? I mean, they went a long time without their songs being used in film. But you grow, and you mature, and you, you, you think differently about these things. So Fuel, whether in wrestling, whether in NASCAR, it's a fucking great song, and the more the merrier is what I say. There are obviously doubts with Until It Sleeps as a theme. Here, there are none. It's a full force entrance theme. And it's been used by Shotaro Ashino in Russell One, who is a big Metallica fan. And I love him. He's great. Anytime I've ever watched Russell One, it was probably because I was cherry picking one of his matches. And Jiro, of course. I love Jiro. But <laughs> Shotaro Ashino, not only does he come out to this, but he also has Master of Puppets inspired trunks, mm. which is really cool. So I like that he uses this. Although I would kind of think that it would fit him a little bit more to use something off of puppets. But still, really cool. Also, this was used by Princess Suhei in Mexico, who actually was just in the Mae Young Classic. So that's pretty recent there. Next up, track two, and it features Marianne Faithful on guest vocals. This is The Memory Remains. Fortune's babe, mirror babe, insane, but the memory. So, a much more subdued song here, in a way. More in line with the majority of the songs on Load and Reload. Not le- Less Speed Freak, more Booze Hound, if you know what I mean there. Still starts with, you know, James speaking directly to the audience here. Fortune, fame, mirror, vein. So it's another difference between, instead of just the guitar riff or something like that, it's just James with a guitar riff. Still, though, a nice fat riff that you can really sink your teeth into. I mentioned earlier Black Sabbath and other people have commented on this. The opening riff reminds me of the riff to Sabbath Bloody Sabbath. And it also kind of sounds like the part in Fade to Black towards the end. I guess the the big thing about this song to talk about is the fact that Marianne Faithful sings on it. And it's the first time that a guest artist is coming in to sing on a Metallica song, which is a pretty big deal. And unfortunately not the last. uh, Let's not talk about that, okay? (laughs) You, You wouldn't have gotten this in the old days. Certainly not. I mean, the song is about an old washed up star who has lost their fame and is now going crazy. And Marianne Faithful, I would not call her washed up at all because she's had a very successful career and is a very important figure of the history of women in rock and roll. But her voice is so perfect for the part that she needs to sing that. It's so haunting that like smoker's voice she has that it totally goes with the vibe of the song. 
it doesn't feel out of place. It just it makes the song unique as well, and it's it's so different than a Metallica song, but it's of the time I think with what they were going for here with Load and Reload, this this new type of, of sound. And it's also timeless because if you go to a Metallica show to this day, and they play the Memory Remains, not only does every fucking person in that building yeah. scream the Memory Remains, not only do they do that. But they will all fucking join hands and sing that Marianne Faithful melody. Yeah, my favorite track off the SNM album, the live album they did. Oh my god. My it's favorite incredible. version of the song, by the way. It's so great. The entire audience is like, nah, 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 And James is like, sing it. Nah, nah. Yeah, it's so fucking great. Yeah. We should explain, actually, what SNM is. Oh, yes. A little after this album came out, Metallica did a live album with the San Francisco Symphony Orchestra. And it's SNM. The title there, of course, little tongue-in-cheek, but it's essentially Metallica and an orchestra doing their songs and making orchestral arrangements to go along with the music. And at first, it doesn't really sound, you know, like really, really, that kind of thing, but I think once you hear it, like the combination, they work together so well, and it's so epic. Yeah, there are some songs on there that are just really out of this world, like the version of The Thing That Should Not Be is really incredible, and... Mm. No Leaf Clover, which was a previously oh, yes. unreleased song that they debuted there. Great One song. of my favorite Metallica songs ever. One of my top five songs. Fantastic. Amazing song, No Leaf Clover. So SM is really cool. Actually, what SM, actually, how that ties into wrestling is that I think Finn Balor's theme sounds like something that would have been on SM. Yes. It kind of has that kind of vibe to it. I, I get the vibe, yeah. So I'd be interested to see if CFOs are Metallica fans and have listened to SM at all because Balor's theme definitely strikes me as something that would not be out of place on SNM. But as far as the memory remains, now this was used for Triple H and The Undertaker, their video packages leading into WrestleMania 28. And the, the memory that I have attached to this, the memory that remained is one time my dad texting me to ask if they got Hornswoggle to sing vocals <laughs> on this song in the Marianne Faithful part. <laughs> he asked me if that was Hornswoggle singing. Uh, oh, dads. I think about every time I listen to this. It's great. I think, yeah, every time I listen to this song, I think about that. But really, this song is incredible. This is one of those songs on Reload that a lot of people think, oh, Reload, that was all the rejects from Load that didn't make it. Yeah. When in reality, they recorded the albums at the same exact time and wanted to make it a double album. But they wound up not doing that. So this could have been up there with any of the best songs from those sessions. This is one of my favorite Metallica songs. It's incredible. And for those video packages that they were using at Triple H and Undertaker, I mean, I did not really care about that match. I was kind of done with of the three of point. those matches of the two, like the two Undertaker match, Triple H matches. I love that one more. So I, 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 I love the match a lot. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting choice of this first song for to use for the match because it was end of an era, all the memories, all the years, etc. But also, the song is about like an older star losing their fame. Well, guess, guess what? Wrestlers are no different. Exactly. They want to cling to their fame and their stardom just as much as anyone else. And, you know, a match like Triple H, Undertaker, Hell in a Cell, special guest referee Shawn Michaels, if, if that doesn't reek of remember the Attitude Era, you know, remember the classics, you know, remember that, remember those great days? then I don't know what does. So kind of ironic there to use that song and that, that connotation. Song number three off the album is track number three, Devil's Dance. 
Another heavy, groovy number two. Excellent, excellent bass intro over there from Jason. Just keep it real simple throughout the whole song, really. Lars and Kirk keep it simple. James, I think, is on fire with this song. He spits out the lyrics with such force and such contempt. It's fantastic. It's funny, though. Within the first, like, minute or so, I already had, like, 12 songs to compare the intro to. Yeah. The opening bass and drum with that it's China White by Scorpions, Hookah Blues, Sabu's theme, Bully Ray's theme, The Bean Path, Running with the Devil by Van Halen, Believer by Ozzy Osbourne. Yeah. The guitar tone in general reminds me of like Dio era Black Sabbath. And I guess the song is kind of like the younger brother to Sad But True. Yeah, definitely. So there are a lot a lot of callbacks, a lot of references there, but still a real kick-ass song. I fucking love this song, man. And it's one of the ones that doesn't immediately jump out when I'm thinking about my favorite Metallica songs. But every time I listen to it, I'm like, this is an incredible song. And like you said, a younger brother to Sad But True. In some ways, I'd say maybe even a little bit heavier. I mean, this is up there with Sad But True and Thing That Should Not Be and Dream No More from the new album Hardwired, which is a fucking great song and I love it. And it's just one of those slow, just super heavy, super real cool, and has that kind of groove to it where you can tell it's so much fun to play it live. But this is a great theme and used by Carl Anderson. Yeah, in New Japan, Ring of Honor and PWG, obviously before the whole Machine Gun song, of course. And also uh, Mike Mondo used it in OVW. So again, cross-promotional, cross-continents, Metallica, all over the place. Reload, again, a number one album, goes four times platinum. The biggest change that happens during this time period isn't the music, though. It's the fact that Metallica (gasps) cut their hair. Oh, no. And that, Chris, was the final straw for some people. You can change the music, you can change the band members, but you do not touch the hair of a metalhead. That is sacred ground, my friend. To quote the song Damage, Inc., This is where a lot of Metallica fans started to go into steamroller action, crushing all of their Metallica albums. Yeah. And just renouncing Metallica. They cut their fucking hair and they start dressing differently. So who who cares? In wrestling, perception is everything. I mentioned this with uh, John Carroll recently on uh, the episode of Wrestling Omakase that I did, which is out now. You could be a total sweetheart on the inside. But if you look like a badass and you act like a badass in the ring, people are going to think, yeah, he's a badass. And that was true for Metallica and their fans. 80s and early 90s Metallica had long hair, heavy metal shirts, jeans, maybe some sweatpants, some Zubaz, who knows. They're playing angry, loud, thrash metal music. And the Metallica fans who have long hair and wear heavy metal shirts and jeans the disenchanted youth of the world, they look at Metallica and they think, these guys look like me, they're angry, their music is loud and aggressive. That's how I feel. They're fighting the system, they're my guys. Now, jump ahead to 96. Metallica, you know, they cut their hair. They start wearing suits and sunglasses. They change the logo on the album covers. They start going away from thrash metal and start playing more hard rock songs more mellow songs, more bluesy songs that are more suitable for the radio, more suitable for the masses. And it doesn't matter that you've got Fuel and King Nothing and Devil's Dance. To them, that's not Metallica. That is a mockery of what Metallica used to be. 
and the countless times, the countless fucking times where we've seen a wrestler that we love go to WWE or WCW or TNA or wherever and they change and they lose what makes them special in our eyes. Oh, oh my God, Kenta is in WWE and he's smiling and doing headlocks. Oh, oh my God, oh my God, Mike Awesome is in WCW and he's a chubby chaser. It hurts, it really hurts to see that. Me, I don't give a shit about Metallica's hair. They're not Samson, okay? It doesn't affect their playing at all. As long as I like the music, doesn't matter. That's all I care about. That That's me, that's me. You know, subjective art form and all. But the people who really came out with Metallica, who felt irked off by the Black Album, who felt betrayed by Load and Reload, the hair was just like the final straw for them. And again, it, it adds fuel, no pun intended, to the fire of their hatred and their, their anger towards them. You can say whatever you want about Kirk Hammett or Lars Ulrich. I mean, Jason Newstead is always metal as fuck, and he'll he'll always be that way regardless of his hair. But James Hetfield, too, is he's one of the most badass frontmen in all of music, regardless of whether he has his his 83 look or his 86 look or his 96 look or whether he's in you know group therapy sessions with phil toll who wears bill cosby sweaters or whether he's at his daughter's dance recital he's one of the most badass front men ever in rock and roll and hair something as silly as hair does not change that people are fickle and they like what they like and if things change better watch out okay 1998 metallica releases a cover album called garage inc which features a mix of old and new covers the band had done. Let's take a look at their version of Turn the Page by Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band. On a long and lonesome highway East of Omaha You can listen to the engine Morning out is one old song You think about the woman The girl you knew the night Your thoughts will soon be wandering The way they always do When you're riding 16 hours There's nothing much When you do a cover, Chris, the goal is kind of to, you know, make it your own. You know, and I think Metallica do a really good job here of transferring the song over from classic Heartland rock to a more hard rock sound. Instead of the uh, the sweet saxophone we get in the original version, we get the guitar line from Kirk. The cool thing about the song, though, is that even though it's it's much heavier, it still conveys the same tone as the original. That same you know melancholy feeling, and that could be the way you know James is singing in a more you know soulful manner, like Bob Seger did, or just the song keeping the same tempo as the original did, and not going too far out there as far as the cover goes. Uh, either way, I think it's an excellent cover of an already excellent song. It had James Hetfield written all over it. I mean, that's very clear listening to the original. Not only is this one of the most successful and one of the most widely recognized covers that they've done, it also has pro wrestling written all over it because much like Wherever I May Roam, yeah. I mean, you look at the lyrics and this translates to pro wrestling beautifully, almost perfectly. You don't, you don't have to change anything. There I am on the road again. There I am up on the stage there I go, playing the star again. There I go, turn the page. The grind of the road. You know, stand-up comedians, 
musicians, pro wrestlers. For them, there is no off-season. There is no summer vacation. They have to be out there on the road to support themselves and their families. So unless they have another paying gig, there's no other way. And that constant grind on the road is going to wear you down, not just physically, but emotionally and socially. I mean, the amount of marriages and parental relationships that have been damaged because daddy wasn't home, he was on TV, or he was in, you know, Walla Walla, Washington for, for a house show, it, it, it's staggering. And it, it is sad, but it's the life they chose, unfortunately. Where my daddy, my daddy. I thought it was real funny when the big freak show's daddy died and went straight to hell. <laughs> So yeah, this was used for the stable The Origin in Progress Wrestling, and it sounds very similar. You pointed this out, Chris. It sounds very similar to another wrestling theme, Drew McIntyre's old theme, Broken Dreams by Shaman's Harvest. This song is very clearly inspired by Turn the Page. Oh, you know, there's nothing Shaman's Harvest haven't come out and said, oh yeah, yeah, we, we based that off Metallica's cover of Turn the Page, but just anyone with a keen ear can listen and see that it is very much reminiscent of it, especially in terms of the guitar tones. Yeah, definitely. Overall, it, it recalls it very much. One of the better wrestling themes that WWE's ever gotten from an outside band. Definitely. And if you go on YouTube, you'll find a bunch of videos yeah. of like mashups of the two songs. So that's very, that's very prescient as well. So the next actual studio album of original material doesn't come out until 2003. So six years between studio albums, the longest so far. And in between Reload and St. Anger, a couple of things happened to the band. Thing number one, uh, Metallica sues Napster for allowing their songs to be illegally downloaded over the internet for free. Thing number two, Jason Newstead quits the band in 2001 because he wanted to release an album for his side project, Echo Brain. And James said, no, you're not going to do that because you're still in Metallica. And Jason said, okay, I quit. So Bob Rock actually takes over as temporary bassist. Thing number three, uh, the band becomes the subject of a documentary that would follow them through the recording process for the album. And thing number four, James enters rehab. So there's a lot of turmoil, a lot of goings on in the Metallica camp, a lot of pressure to put out the new album. And when the album comes out, well, things don't really get better for them, shall we say. So let's take a listen, because the sound you're about to hear does not work in favor of the band's reputation. This is the title track off the album. This is Saint Anger. Let's start off addressing the pots and pans covered elephant in the room. One day in the studio, Lars forgets to turn on his snare drum on his kit. So when he starts hitting the snare drum during the recording session, he gets that sound that sounds like he's hitting a cooking pot. And 
Funny enough, he likes it. God damn it. <laughs> he likes it so much, he uses it on the entire album of Saint Anger. Now, there are two big reasons why people do not like Saint Anger. Number one is the lack of guitar solos from Kirk. And number two is the sound of the drums. Now, having said all of that, and after listening to this song on repeat a bunch of times, I think we can agree, Chris, that this song kicks fucking ass and it's fucking awesome. That's right. We said it. We love this fucking song. It's heavy. It's aggressive. It's an emotional roller coaster. One minute, James is sweetly singing, Saint Anger around my neck. And it's like, oh, buddy, come on, man. I I know how you feel. Give me a fucking hug, man. Come on here. The next minute, James is screaming, fuck it all, fucking no regrets. I hit the lights on these dog sets. It's like, motherfucker, let's burn this bastard to the fucking ground. (laughs) It gets the blood pumping. It's raw as all hell. This, it's raw. This thing is grimier than a southern indie, okay? There's so much unpolished, pure rage here. It just, it blows you the fuck away. There are so many places to start with sane anger. I mean, overall, I think Lars Ulrich in so many ways is brilliant, has a brilliant mind for music. Maybe not the most technically gifted drummer. He didn't need to be for Metallica. He was the right drummer. There are so many parts that would not nearly be the same if Dave Lombardo was the drummer for Metallica. They'd be great. They'd be cool. But Lars made this band special in a way that another drummer may not. Lars also made this band special in the way that he contributes to arrangements and putting the overall songs together. And Lars Ulrich, had he not chosen to be a drummer, would have been a hell of a record producer because he has an ear for metal and he knows what makes a great fucking song. I mean, just look at Metallica's track record. This album is not included in that because I will say this album suffers from the things that you've mentioned and also the fact that all of these songs just go on for too fucking long. I mean, the full version of the St. Anger song, not the single version, not the edited down version, is like over eight minutes long. It does not need to be that long. None of these songs need to be as long as they are. And I think making up for the fact that there were no guitar solos on this album, Lars wanted to include what he called more riff-o-rama sections, which you look back at this album and there were some cool moments and there were some cool ideas that could have been maybe focused on a little bit more and the idea of more focus and a little bit less filler in this album would make it a little bit more bearable. Now, if Lars decided to turn on the snares on his drum, it would also make this album a lot more bearable. But the other element of this is James Hetfield's lyrics, which... Man, the guy just got out of rehab, and I'm not going to give him any shit for anything that he says on this album. Yeah. I mean, a lot of these lyrics were also contributed by other band members. Kirk Hammett. Kirk, my lifestyle determines my death style Hammett. (laughs) So... To quote Frank Costanza, what the hell does that mean? (laughs) It means whatever you want it to mean. You know, St. Anger... For as much shit as it gets, and as much hate as it gets, and for as unpleasant of an experience as it is, I have such a soft spot in my heart for it because of Mm. the Some Kind of Monster documentary that I watched over and over and over. Some Kind of Monster was often the background soundtrack for me doing homework or something like that. So 
having heard all the songs on that documentary over and over again and having seen the creation of them and everything that went into them and how much of a beautiful train wreck that period of the band was and how close they came to not existing anymore as a band and how easy it would have been for James to not get sober and things to just completely fall off the rails. I'm so thankful that they're all, you know, on good terms with each other and James is healthy and that they're happy and they have their families and the fact that they're happy as a band and continued on is is really secondary to all of that. But Saint Anger, the song, is to me one of the bright spots of the album. There are a few. Yeah. I think there are a few good songs on the album that if they were edited down for time and had the snare replaced, I think that this album would not get as much hate as it does. But be that as it may, this song, for me in particular, is important because I specifically remember the night of SummerSlam 2003 waiting to order the pay-per-view and just watching the promo for the pay-per-view over and over and over on the website. And this was the song. This was the theme for SummerSlam 2003. And watching the highlights of everything cut to this song, for some reason, it just it clicked in my mind. And I wasn't even really big into Metallica at that time yet. But when I did get into Metallica, I remembered, oh, wow, yes, yeah, St. Anger. I remember that night where I just watched that video over and over until I ordered the pay-per-view. So for that reason, this song is very special to me, and I always associate it with SummerSlam 2003. And I think, you know, whatever you thought of St. Anger, the album, I think a lot of people do give it up for this song, that it is a good song. Yeah, St. Anger used as the theme for SummerSlam 2003, also used by Luke Gallows in IGF. And as much as we gush over the song, I mean, this period of the band is considered the low point by pretty much every, everyone. I mean, they, they have some serious X-Pac heat. St. Anger, I mean, still, number one album, sold two million in the States. Still, number one, touring everywhere. But, man, the Napster scandal, Jason leaving, James going to rehab, the documentary, you know, not showing them in the best light, to say the least. And the criticism towards the album as a whole... It really put a sour note on the band, especially Lars. Lars, to this day, I think, is the de facto heel of the group. He's the one that people always point towards. He's the one they direct their vitriol at the most. They call him a bad drummer, call him an asshole, a douchebag. They boot him at the VMAs one year because of the whole Napster thing. Which, okay, is Lars an asshole? Yeah, he kind of is. But he's also very passionate and protective of his music. And for good reason, too. Oh, yeah. And you know what? There were so many people in the music industry silently supporting Metallica in that. Yeah. But that they knew that if they spoke out, what what, what happened to Lars and what happened to Metallica would happen to them. Right. And the backlash that that would bring. Even someone as high up as Dr. Dre would privately tell them, hey, keep doing this, keep doing what you're doing, because this is going to affect us all. And we've seen it play out over the past decade and a half, how music piracy has affected the industry and now streaming. And Lars, with the, his foresight, saw where that would go and was brave enough to, say to put himself yeah. out there and kind of be the figurehead of it. So as much as people hate it, I give them props for not only that, I give James props for entering rehab and huge respect for turning his life around and for allowing that entire process to be filmed and then released to the public. Massive respect because people, especially in in an in industry like metal, have such a hard time with vulnerability and showing themselves as being vulnerable and anything other than a golden god. And they weren't afraid to do that and kind of take you behind the scenes into some intensely personal stuff and show them in group therapy sessions with Phil Toll and his Bill Cosby sweaters. <laughs> so they weren't afraid of that. So for that, 
I love that documentary. I've watched it so many times and I love this band even more for having the willingness to do that. When they're making their first album, they had to sleep on the floor of their manager's apartment because they had no money. And then through years and years of touring and struggling and heartbreak, they managed to build up this global audience and global phenomenon and become the biggest metal band in the world. And now, you know, after all that hard work, some kid in Boise can just click a button and get all their songs for free. So Lars, he's an asshole. The band were looked at as being, you know, against their fans in a way. But I mean, Lars has a reason for being an asshole. The band has reasons for being against all this because they, they, they worked hard. Lars, I guess he's the heel who thinks he's right. And in a way, he actually is. And Lars was an asshole long before the Napster thing. Oh, yeah. But he's been a lovable asshole, and I think he continues to be a lovable asshole. People who are going to hate Metallica and hate Lars, they're going to do that regardless. But for Metallica fans, it's one of those things where he's the heel that you you love to hate him. And some people don't even hate him. I think he's fucking hilarious. So after St. Anger comes out, the band gets a permanent bass player, Robert Trujillo, formerly of suicidal tendencies and Ozzy Osbourne also formerly of the shield uh, yes yes it has it hasn't brought up that Robert looks like Roman Reigns to me I think long-haired Kirk Hammett looks like long-haired Pinky Sanchez god that's me oh no so yeah uh, they bring in Robert also they say Bob we love you but enough is enough we're gonna go away from you now Aww. they get a new producer I know they say goodbye to the banana <laughs> And again, new producer, uh, legendary producer Rick Rubin, who's done about, I don't know, eight bajillion things in his career. And who did absolutely nothing on this album except show up a few times. If you don't know what Rick Rubin looks like, picture Hanson from War Machine, except <laughs> instead, of, ex- instead, of, instead of doing planchas and springboards, he sits on a couch and says, uh, add more trouble to the course. Rick Rubin's main contribution to this album, I think, was telling them not to be afraid to reference themselves and to look to their past in order to create their future. Yeah. That was his contribution to this album. The rest of the album There's another contribution which we'll get to. Oh, oh, okay, uh, yes. This is 2008, and this is Death Magnetic, the track All Nightmare Long. Surrounding Death Magnetic was indeed Metallica going back to their thrash metal roots. So, bringing back the fast, frantic pace, bringing back the crazy guitar solos, bringing back the longer, more complex songs, no more of that awful snare drum, and All Nightmare Long checks all those boxes. It's very fast paced, very technically complex, eight minutes long, and it's in line with earlier songs like The Call of Cthulhu and The Thing That Should Not Be which are based on H.P. Lovecraft. I don't listen to a lot of Death Magnetic, honestly. Me either. But when I do, the track I go to from the beginning is All Nightmare Long. It is my favorite song off the album. 
I love it so much. That opening bass line is just killer. The guitar riffs are fantastic. The chorus gets me pumped up. And just the title, All Nightmare Long, is a cool title for a song. It is, and this song works really well in a pro wrestling context, especially for video packages. And there are so many different sections that you can cut to, and the chorus in particular works real well for playing throughout the course of a pay-per-view like they did in No Mercy 2008 when they used this. The thing about this song, and the thing about this album, and the reason why I was super disappointed when Death Magnetic came out, not because I hated the music, because the mix and master sound like absolute shit. That's what I meant when I said Rick Rubin's other contribution. Because when the album came out, there was a lot of hubbub over the production quality. Uh, Rick Rubin is guilty of mixing audio too loud on his albums. I think I've seen like people complain about 13 by Black Sabbath, their most recent one. Uh, Californication by the Chili Peppers. That's a big one. It's called The Loudness War. How loud and compressed can we make a song or an album? People complain about this. And we both work in radio, Chris. I know when I hear audio that is recorded too hot and it starts to clip, especially voice audio, it really bugs me. Music, it, for me, it's harder for me to hear that kind of stuff. I'm not really used to studying that kind of side of things. You, though, I think you're the music guy much more than I am in terms of production style and all that stuff. Did you notice it right away when you first heard it? I imagine you did. Yeah, the first thing that I noticed was, holy shit, why is the kick drum so loud? Oh my god, this is piercing my ear. I couldn't even make it through half of That Was Just Your Life, the opening track on the album, before I had to take my earbuds out and say, all right, wait a minute, this sounds like shit. And I popped it open in Adobe Audition, and I looked at all the waveforms, and oh my god, these things are brick wall limited to hell and back. Thick blue lines all the way down. And it wasn't just me. And you go online and you read about other, oh, why does why do these songs sound like shit? My first clue about this was when Metallica streamed The Day That Never Comes, the first track that they released off of the album, and I noticed, well, this sounds really bad. This sounds really limited. But I thought maybe it was just the stream that they provided. Maybe it was just compressing it in a way that mm. brick walled everything, but... This entire album is one of the most high-profile instances of the Loudness Wars in action, and that's something that they haven't really formally corrected or officially corrected, but it is possible to download stems from the Guitar Hero Metallica game, which included all of these songs, yes, and people yeah. have actually done remixes of this album mixed at a much lower volume and a much less fatiguing experience to listen to all these songs. Now, of course, the mix still sounds like shit because the drums are really dry and the drum tones that they got in this album were not good at all. The guitar tones aren't great and James's vocals are bone dry. They sound like they are recorded in a vacuum. The thing with James Hetfield is he has a voice that lends itself well to stacking and doubling and tripling and reverb and delay these are all standard vocal techniques that make records sound like records and james's vocals here are just bone dry that was also one of the main things that i had one of the main problems i had with this album is that it just sounds bone dry even when you take away the fact that it was recorded hot mixed hot and mastered mm. on fire so death magnetic super disappointed with it when it came out i've come around on it a little bit in recent years when i've been able to listen to fan remasters but it's still not one that I go to all that often. I listen to Saint Anger, the album, more than I listen to Death Magnetic. Yeah, All Nightmare Long was the theme for No Mercy 2008, so another pay-per-view theme there. And with the album, the band, I think, was in a bit of a pickle, because if they kept course and stayed on that hard rock path, 
people would still complain it's not the old Metallica. If they went back to thrash metal, which they did here, people would still complain and say, oh, it's just them trying too hard to recapture their former glory. It, it was a no-win scenario for them. And it's kind of weird to think of Metallica as being like underdogs because they're they're so popular and they're such you know they're they're so rich and so famous. It's hard to really think of them like that in that way. But when you're a fan of a band and other people just shit on them so much constantly, no matter what they do, you can't help but look at them as underdogs. But still, again, number one album only sells two million in the U.S. But I think that's more of a statement about the music business than Metallica is. And overall, this album was a success, I feel. And when they play these songs live, people dig them. And I dig the songs. But it is not to the degree of acceptance that I feel what we're going to talk about next is. Yes, the next and final album we'll be discussing came out last year, 2016, on Blackened Recordings which is the band's personal label, and they actually managed to get their all their rights, their music, signed over to them a couple of years ago. Which is really cool. Really cool, really nice for them. Also, they get rid of Rick Rubin and get another new producer named uh, Greg Feidelman, and he, James, and Lars produce the album Hardwired to Self-Destruct, and the song, which we'll be discussing, the final song of the night is Am I Savage? Admittedly, Chris, I haven't heard much from the new album. Heard a couple songs here and there, and the ones I like, they've all been faster songs that have been really good. You know, Hardwired, Moth into Flame, I Spit Out the Bone, Atlas Rise. So when I put this one on, I noted how slower it was in comparison. Definitely a throwback, not just in a way to, I guess, the bluesier stuff of Load and Reload, but also a throwback kind of to Black Album and also, I think, Black Sabbath. Oh, sure. I get early Sabbath vibes strong off this one. Very, that kind of mix between, you know, blues and metal. So, again, it's really cool to see them. Yes, they're back to thrash metal, but they're not completely abandoning what they've done before with their 90s stuff. For me, I see Hardwired as kind of a greatest hits sampler of all of the eras that they've gone through. There's a little bit of everything on here in terms of songwriting and, and sound. For me, this album is nothing short of an instant classic. I, I really, truly believe that. And I was very surprised that I, I felt that way, especially coming off of Death Magnetic. I This album came out almost a year ago, and I still have it in heavy rotation. And I think that a lot of songs on it would work really well in a pro wrestling context. Now, as far as this song goes, not the heaviest or most musically intense song on the album, as we've said, but it doesn't have to be, you know, and, and instead of the full-on riff fest, it kind of lays back a little and is a bit more calculated, and you have, you know, the soft, clean intro that builds up to the main riff, which we've seen many times in Metallica history, and then a nice swinging riff that wouldn't be out of place on load or reload, and the chorus, which is super simple but memorable, 
and works really well in a video package yes. like we see here with Triple H for Seth Rollins. Yeah, for Mania 33 earlier in the year. Yeah, it, it, the song is, I guess it's kind of like a sequel in a way to A Wolf and Man, where it's about a werewolf like passing along the curse to his son. Which, you know, it sounds ridiculous on a literal sense, but for the feud with these two guys, it works. Because Triple H was the one who took Seth under his wing. He, he turned Seth heel and broke up the shield. He, he gave him the pedigree for a finisher. And now that Triple H has betrayed Seth, Seth now is back for revenge. So he's using the curse against his own maker. Very epic, very poetic in a way, but it works, especially for a package. More so than an actual, I think, theme. Oh yeah, definitely more for a video package. And that's okay, yeah. because video packages are very important too, and selecting the right music. I mean, I'll always remember that this was used for that video package. I'll always have that association. So I like that Triple H again, likes to incorporate bands that he really loves and Metallica being one of them. And, you know, as far as the Hardwired album as a whole, I mean, for anyone who is a Metallica fan who maybe kind of checked out at a certain point, I urge you to listen to this album, give it a good once through because there's a lot to love on here. The production issues have been well fixed. I mean, it sounds so much better than Death Magnetic does. From the vocal production to the mix and master, the kick drum is still a little high in the mix, but what are you going to do? Lars Ulrich is in the band, and, <laughs> and that's what you get. But actually, Greg Fiddleman, who produced it with them, he was their engineer on Death Magnetic. Yeah, I, I read that. And He's... I don't know what happened there. <laughs> But he definitely ensured that this album is a much more pleasant experience to listen to. So there's a lot to love on Hardwired, and, and this is this is one of the songs as well. Hardwired, definitely, from what I've heard, it's it's a nice reminder that Metallica is Metallica, and this is why. So, and again, another number one album, which makes six in a row for them. The only other band to do that is the Dave Matthews Band. The only of those two has six in a row at number one. So that was Metallica and wrestling. I think we've said all that needs to be said, Chris. At this stage in the game, Metallica is at a point where they can do whatever they want. They're Metallica. They, they set the tone. And as long as the music is good, fine by me. And it's fine by wrestling. It's fine by wrestling because no matter what the sound is, pro wrestling will always have a place for Metallica. Except for that Lou Reed album, which no, uh, no, we will never mention. We will never mention that, again. Who? Under penalty of torture, we will, ne we will never mention again. Who Reed? <laughs> Metallica. They're always going to find their way into pro wrestling somehow, and Lord knows we've we've talked at length about this. This is on track to be our longest episode. I'm going to see what I can do in editing, but if you stuck with it, thank you. If you're not a Metallica fan and, and you stuck through this, I hope you found something that you liked and maybe you'll check it out. <laughs> I love Metallica. Yeah. If it's not obvious from this episode, I didn't write any notes for this episode. I wrote like a few things and then even then I was like, I don't even need this. I'm just going to go off the cuff. This is one of the most fun episodes to record. Yeah. And I hope it was fun to listen to because uh, it, it's the cross section of things that I'm mm. super passionate about. So I hope it was a great experience for everyone to listen to. Well, that does it. This episode of Music of the Mat is now in the books. Thank you again so much for listening. Music of the Mat, part of the Voices of Wrestling podcast network home to many fantastic podcasts, including, as I mentioned before, Wrestling Omakase with John Carroll, which I was on just a few days ago, talking all about New Japan's destruction shows and the upcoming King of Pro Wrestling show. So check that one out. Also check out the flagship podcast, Shake Them Ropes, 
Burning Spirits, Everything Evolves. That one blew up big oh, yeah. uh, recently, given the news. <laughs> Open the Voice Gate, so much more. Five-star match game. Those are all available and more at VoicesOfWrestling.com. Follow us on Twitter at MusicOfTheMat. Follow me on Twitter at Andrew T. Rich. Check out the VOW forums at VoicesOfWrestling.com slash forum. That's also where you can find the YouTube playlists yes. for each episode of the show. So if you want to hear the entire songs in their clarity, go there. Finally, rate, review, subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, I know we just had a few people give us some reviews on iTunes, and they were very positive. So thank you so, so much to them for the kind words. And keep them coming. Spread the word, as always, because this podcast is so, so much fun. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Yes, thank you very much for those who took the time to do that. Uh, in particular, Head Cheese, our pal Head yeah, Cheese. Yeah, Head Cheese. Good old, His review was love very funny. Yes. I, I got a big chuckle out of that. You know what I also find funny? It, on our iTunes, it says that we're a clean podcast, which... Oh, yeah, that's... Hey, fuck it all and fucking no regrets. <laughs> we hit the lights on these dark sets. Absolutely. Okay, on our next episode, episode 19, we are going to go in a decidedly different direction and talk about Dragon Gate because uh, it's been a while it's been a while <laughs> since uh, we've discussed Dragon Gate, but given that the promotion has, you know, gotten a lot of buzz recently with Mochizuki winning the Dreamgate title again and the Jimmies breaking up, we figure what better time to discuss some Dragon Gate themes than right now. So, we don't have a specific topic yet, but when we do, we promise we'll let you guys know on Twitter as soon as possible. Again, episode 19, Dragon Gate, in some form or fashion. We just know it'll be a lot of fun. It definitely will be. Dragon Gate is my favorite promotion. It's the only promotion that I've actually been keeping up with lately because I've been just so tuned out of wrestling. So <laughs> I'm always down to talk some Dragon Gate themes, and I'm sure that whatever we pick, it's going to be a ton of fun. Yes. So, for Chris Maffei, I'm Andrew Rich. We'll see you next time on Music of the Mat. Take care, everyone. And remember, yeah! <laughs> I was just going to say. <laughs> Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Music of the Mat is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The songs used throughout this show are property of their respective copyright holders. Here it comes again. Lunch. Will it be the same old, same old? Or are you ready to take a vacation from the ordinary with the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub at Firehouse Subs? Freshly sliced smoked turkey breast, craveably sweet mustard sauce, and a hint of Caribbean seasoning. Just $5.55 for a medium. Save time. Order the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub on the Firehouse Subs app. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Participating locations. Limited time only. Plus tax. Prices may vary for delivery.